Hi, this is Ben Thompson, the author and founder of Stratechery. Welcome to the Stratechery Daily Update podcast, where I read you the daily update. You can also read the text of the daily update or find the links I reference by visiting the show notes in your podcast player. Now, here's today's daily update. This daily update about the future of tech conferences, Apple's supply chain continued, and remote work in Zoom was published on Wednesday, March 4th, 2020. Good morning. I think two days is enough, at least for now, of talking about COVID-19 specifically. I do recommend this Bloomberg piece by Tyler Cowen for a meta perspective on how worried we should be. Just how bad will the new coronavirus be? I can't answer that question, but I have observed the debate splitting into two broad camps. Call them growthers and the base raters. The term growthers refers to the notion of exponential growth, and indeed the number of COVID-19 cases appears, by some accounts, to be following an exponential pattern. Some scientists have estimated that the number of cases doubles about every seven days. If you play that logic out, it is easy enough to see how people might be complacent at first, then in a few months there is a public health crisis. The base raiders, when assessing the likelihood of a particular scenario, start by asking how often it has happened before. That is, they estimate its base rate likelihood. And history shows that major pandemics have lately been rare. The SARS and Ebola outbreaks largely petered out, HIV AIDS was of a very different nature, and the 1957 and 1968 flu epidemics are now distant memories. It's a useful framework, but I'm going to cheat and say I fell somewhere in the middle probably with a bias towards the base rate, in part because, as I explained on Monday, I am skeptical of much of the current data. I do think we will muddle through. The big question is how painful we make it on ourselves along the way. Prudent actions, this Wall Street Journal piece is a good overview, now may feel expensive, but we could save much larger costs in the long run. But back to tech. The long-term impact of COVID-19 on the industry will depend on how long and how severe the crisis ends up being. Still, there are three themes in particular that have already emerged. On to the update. The future of tech conferences. For nearly a decade, the consumer-facing tech industry has fallen into a regular springtime cadence. Facebook, Microsoft, Google, and finally Apple have their annual developer conferences that feature keynotes laying down each company's roadmap for the following year. In the case of Google and Apple, that includes unveiling the next version of their operating systems, as well as new initiatives like Google Assistant or Apple Music. The situation, at least for the last year or two, has been different for Microsoft and Facebook. Back in 2017, I noted that Facebook had no vision other than leveraging their network, while in 2018, Microsoft didn't demonstrate a single consumer feature. That pattern has largely continued. In 2018, Facebook's big new feature was Facebook dating, and in 2019, it was all about connecting Facebook's various networks into one encrypted messaging platform, while Microsoft focused on its enterprise development platform. Interestingly, of the two, It is Facebook's that feels the least necessary. Perhaps that played a role in the company being the first to cancel its conference out of an abundance of caution about the coronavirus. Facebook is not really a development platform, and Oculus has its own conference. And the success or failure of its new features depend more on how much real estate the company is willing to leverage in its core apps. It's not out of the question that F8, the ultimate legacy of which may be the Facebook platform that led to the Cambridge Analytica crisis, won't be back. Build, to Microsoft's credit, is still very much a developer conference, just not a consumer one like Google or Apple's. But while it is true that all three serve a far greater audience than they could ever accommodate at any one conference, 
There is real value to having a specified point in time to communicate what is coming next. After all, APIs are only as good as the apps built on top of them. At the same time, conferences are a big pain in the rear end, not simply from a logistical perspective, but also in terms of distracting engineers from actually building the features they are announcing. If Google, which announced yesterday that it was canceling I.O., is able to pull off a successful all-digital alternative that accomplishes its goals of advertising new features both to consumers and developers, it will be tempting to stick with that format going forward. Apple, meanwhile, hasn't said anything. To be fair, that is normal, because Apple usually doesn't announce WWDC is even happening until March or April. WWDC is the granddaddy of these events, having started in 1987, and has been subject to a lottery system for years. Apple is also the company that is most able to easily garner press attention whenever it likes. The company could definitely get away without WWDC, but it would certainly be the end of an era. For now, it's understandable that the company is waiting. June is the furthest away, and Apple generally has a more conservative bent. Still, these companies are so large, not just in terms of users but are also developers, that it is fair to wonder if it doesn't make sense for the conference era, which only ever provides a finite linear return on significant time and money, to fade away in favor of purely digital events that reflect how most users and developers experience the conferences today. Even Apple, after years of holding out, now live streams every WWDC session, and that scales to the entire world. This transition, absent COVID-19, would probably take many years to play out, one wonders if cancellations this year might not result in a step change. I would add that this doesn't necessarily apply to all of the smaller-scale conferences held by enterprise companies in particular. There, the relationships matter more and are more manageable, making the investment worth the trouble. The consumer-focused developer conferences are just at an entirely different scale. Apple's supply chain continued. I have already written about supply chains several times in the context of Apple, but I did want to highlight this article in the Wall Street Journal. Long before the coronavirus struck, Apple Incorporated's operations team began raising concerns about the technology giant's dependency on China. Some operations executives suggested as early as 2015 that the company relocate assembly of at least one product to Vietnam. That would allow Apple to begin the multi-year process of training workers and creating a new cluster of component providers outside the world's most populous nation, people familiar with the discussions said. Senior managers rebuffed the idea. For Apple, Winning itself off China, its second largest consumer market and the place where most of its products are assembled, has been too challenging to undertake. A clean break with China is impossible. Apple relies on a workforce of more than 3 million indirect workers in China. Its top manufacturer, Taiwan's Foxconn Technology Group, hires hundreds of thousands of seasonal employees in China, many of whom manually insert tiny screws and thin print circuit boards during the iPhone assembly process, people familiar with the process said. Tens of thousands of experienced manufacturing engineers oversee the process. Over time, Apple, Foxconn, and China formed a triangle of interdependency. Apple grew to depend on Foxconn to make devices and Chinese consumers to buy them. Foxconn built this business by leaning on China's vast workforce and control over land to construct factories. And China became beholden to Foxconn as the nation's largest private sector employer and Apple as a trainer of new technology suppliers. The entanglement unnerved some Apple executives who encouraged company leaders to look outside China to minimize the risks of labor unrest or a change in Beijing's positions on Apple. The entire article is well worth a read, including important tidbits like 
One, Apple's status as a major indirect employer helped shield the iPhone from government pressure. Two, it was easier for Samsung to shift smartphone production to Vietnam because its phones are glued together, which means they can be assembled by machines instead of humans. Three, AirPods Pro are being manufactured in Vietnam because of U.S. tariffs. They are also glued together, making them easier to move. As I first wrote last summer, this is a real stain on CEO Tim Cook's legacy. One hopes Cook, in particular, is giving serious long-term thought to the massive risk factor he both introduced by building up Apple in China and has successfully avoided until now. One of the tenets of the Cook Doctrine is that, quote, we need to own and control the primary technologies behind the products that we make, end quote. The supply chain itself is a primary technology undergirding Apple's business, which perhaps ought to invoke another tenet, quote, We have the self-honesty to admit when we're wrong and the courage to change. I don't expect Apple to admit it was wrong publicly. Perhaps the AirPods Pro move marks an admission in action. I certainly hope so. More broadly, one of the points Dan Wong made in a Strategy Daily Update interview is that Foxconn, with Apple's backing, would pay whatever is necessary to get its factories up to speed. That is exactly what is happening. From the South China Morning Post. Foxconn Technology Group, the world's largest contract electronics maker, is dangling big bonuses to learn new workers after its factories in China were shut down during the coronavirus outbreak, according to local reports. New employees can receive 3,000 yuan after clocking 60 days of work and another 4,000 yuan after 90 days, according to a video report by financial newspaper National Business Daily on Sunday. The Post reported last year that the monthly income of workers of the factory was between 2,000 and 3,000 yuan, based on interviews with more than two dozen workers. As Wang noted, this is why Apple will probably be okay this year. Other electronic manufacturers, not so much. Remote work and Zoom. The big risk for Zoom, the video conferencing service that IPO'd a year ago, is that Microsoft eventually leverages its distribution advantage to limit its spread into Microsoft's massive base, as Microsoft is doing to Slack. Microsoft's partner network is a truly gargantuan moat. When it comes to enterprise, it is easy to focus on the biggest companies, where Microsoft will engage directly, and challengers like Slack can build up sales forces to compete. Underneath those companies, though, are tens of thousands of smaller businesses that, even if they have IT directors of their own, rely on outside vendors to build up their technical infrastructure. Here, Microsoft has invested heavily in training and equipping these vendors, Critically, the company also overhauled its incentive program such that it shares its subscription revenue for Azure and Office 365 with its partners, as opposed to one-off payments for acquiring customers. The result is that these partners are heavily motivated to offer and implement Microsoft-centric solutions. Not only does everything, generally, work together, they also make more money in the process. This, then, is the context of the team's daily active users announcement. Microsoft wasn't simply pounding its chest. It was sending a message to its partners that pushing teams is a winning strategy. That strategy, though, takes time. Even if Teams, which has incorporated the functionality of Skype for Business, Nelink, is also Microsoft's answer to Zoom. Should multiple businesses start working from home, Zoom might catch a critical break. I wrote in Microsoft, Slack, Zoom, and the SaaS opportunity... The challenge for incumbents, including Microsoft and also other competitors like Citrix, Cisco, etc., is that years of building their business on leveraging their existing relationships with enterprises left them vulnerable to a company like Zoom, singularly focused on delivering a superior product, at least once a SaaS architecture made distribution so much easier. 
Make no mistake, enterprise software still requires a sales force, but it is far easier to start with customers that have already discovered and tried the product on their own than it is to sell something without any sort of pre-existing relationship. Over the next few weeks, it is likely that a lot of companies will be trying out new video conferencing products, even if, particularly if, they have other, inferior for now, solutions. That potentially gives Zoom a real opportunity to solidify its position by fast-forwarding the sort of trial and comparison shopping that would normally take months or years, particularly relative to Microsoft, to a moment in time when the Zoom product really is better. The daily update is intended for a single recipient, but occasional forwarding is totally fine. If you would like to order multiple subscriptions for your team with a group discount, please contact me directly. Thanks for being a subscriber and have a great day.